They're not relevant uh, to what I'm going to talk about. So um, in the next 50 minutes or so, I'd like to just very briefly review some of the epidemiology and pathophysiology. And then we'll spend more of our time pragmatically on diagnosis and treatment, uh, but really more useful, I think, uh, for, for um, managing these patients. So as most of you, I think, know, heart failure is a big problem. Um, it's the number one cause for hospitalization in America 65 and above. There's currently 6 million. By uh, 2030, there's going to be close to 9 million people uh, in this country with heart failure. Above the age of 65, three quarters of patients have a preserved EF. Now, overall, it's about half and half. But the older that you get, the greater the likelihood of having half half relative to half rep. Now, it's still debated um, by some whether HEF-PEF and systolic heart failure, or heart failure with reduced EF, or HEF-REF, are two different distinct diseases or just part of a continuum. Um, and I'm not going to go too much into this, uh, but I think that the, the totality of evidence suggests that they are two different diseases that produce similar symptoms. So this is a histogram showing the distributions of ejection fraction in all patients in Olmsted County over several years with heart failure. And if it were just one disease, you'd expect a unimodal distribution. It's quite clearly bimodal. Note also that women greatly outnumber men in the normal EDF form for reasons that are not totally clear. We can talk more about that later. Whereas men outnumber women. This is probably related to the greater incidence and prevalence of myocardial infarction in men as it compared to women. Also note the mean age, 74. This is really an, uh, a disease of older folks. 
Um, HEF-TEF and HEF-REF have very distinct patterns of remodeling. In systolic heart failure, the chamber is dilated, the radius is increased. Uh, uh, usually the chamber is normal sized or sometimes even small in patients with HEF-TEF. Um, this is the law of Laplace, Laplace's formula, wall stress is equal to the product of chamber radius times the intracavitary pressure, so the end diastolic pressure, divided by the wall thickness. And I put this up here because you can see that even if, this, if the pressure inside these two chambers is the same, the wall stress is gonna be much higher here. And it turns out that diastolic wall stress is really the stimulus that drives release of BNP. So the clinical implication here is that BNP levels are much lower in patients with HEFF. In fact, they're often normal. Um, so a normal BNP does not rule out HEF-PEF, especially in ambulatory patients. Um, so HEF-PEF is on the increase. This is hospitalizations for systolic failure. No change in Olmsted County over about 20 years, almost a doubling of hospitalizations for HEF-PEF. Now part of this is probably increased recognition, but a lot of it is due to changes in the demographics, secular trends. Um, we have an older population. It's just getting older and older by the year as people live longer and we're seeing increases in obesity. So we did this study. We published in circula Circulation Heart Failure last year. We took patients randomly selected from Olmsted County and they got an echocardiogram and a, co and a comprehensive exam. And then four years later, they came back and got another one. So we were able to look at within patient longitudinal changes. Um, and this is what happened to blood pressure. Um, <laughs> Through aggressive use of ACE inhibitors and diuretics and beta blockers, we were actually able to reduce blood pressure in these patients. Um, so did a good job of managing hypertension. And with that reduction in blood pressure, there's regression in LV mass. So this should be, right, this should really help your diastolic function. This is really what we believe. Uh, but uh, frighteningly, what we saw when we look at changes in left ventricular stiffness is when you look at the stiffness achieved by the ventricle during systole and diastole and diastolic chamber stiffness, it increased by 8 to 14% over just four years. And this is just regular people walking around in the community. Um, we looked at what, are the, what predicts an increase in stiffness with a magnitude of increase, and the, really the only things that were associated were increases in body mass. So people that were gaining more weight, increasing adiposity was associated with a greater magnitude of increase in chamber stiffness. And in women, they had a bigger increase over those four years than men in diastolic stiffness. So again, um, female sex, aging, obesity, these are the dominant risk factors for heart failure preserve EF. This is continuing to increase. This is gonna explain the increase in prevalence and incidence. Now, um, even though your EF is normal, your outcomes are really not that much better comparing patients with HEF-PEF to HEF-REF. At five years, among people that are hospitalized, um, only about 30% of people are still alive. So it's really a significant and morbid condition, mortal condition. Now, this is a forest plot showing um, confidence in 95% confidence intervals and hazard ratios for the combined endpoint of death or heart failure hospitalization in HEF-REF. And we know very well, very unequivocally, uh, that ARBs and ACE inhibitors, uh, digoxin, at least for hospitalizations, and beta blockers reduce these endpoints by 20-30%. Um, when you look at similar trials and uh, registry data in HEF-PEF, all of these confidence intervals uh, cross uh, one. None of these things which really work well in HEF-REF work in HEF-PEF so far. So um, this is a big problem. Again, points to the fundamental differences in the two diseases. Now the pathophysiology, this is my favorite topic, but I'm not gonna go too much into this. I'm gonna just restrict myself to one slide. Uh, but it's very complex, as Terrence alluded to. Um, clearly there's diastolic dysfunction. On average, the ventricles are stiffer. On average, there's prolonged relaxation. There's inadequate suction of blood into the left atrium. That's the normal response. The left ventricle functions as a suction pump. Uh, that's lost in patients with HEF-PEF. But it's much more than that. The increase in filling pressures, the increase in left atrial pressure, uh, leads to an increase in pulmonary artery pressure. And over time, there's pulmonary vascular remodeling, similar to what we've seen in the past with mitral stenosis. Then you start to get RV dysfunction. When the RV fails, you get systemic venous congestion, and this backs up. Even though the EF is normal, EF is actually not a very good measure of contractility. It's a measure of what we call ventricular arterial coupling. And when you do more um, complex load independent measurements, you see there is mild, subtle systolic dysfunction at rest. 
this mild dysfunction at rest when the patient exercises becomes very dramatic. So there's marked limitation, the ability to enhance EF and ejection during exercise. And when the ventricle doesn't contract down to a smaller volume, there's less suction force to aid diastolic filling in the subsequent beat. So this systolic reserve limitation makes the diastolic reserve even worse. Chronotropic incompetence. Our group and others have shown this dating back to 2006. In the RELAX trial, which we published recently, 75% of patients with HEF have met clinical criteria for chronotropic incompetence. Would they do better with a pacemaker? We don't know. We're looking at that right now in a clinical trial we're starting. Atrial fibrillation is very common. Um, when well, left ventricular filling pressures are high over time, it causes distension of the left atrium and remodeling, and that begets atrial fibrillation. Remember, LA volume is sort of the hemoglobin A1C of diastolic pressures. Um, a recent study that was published last year showed that if you look at patients with HEFPEF across their whole life course, um, two-thirds of them will have AFib at some time point. It's incredibly common. Uh, we know that in systolic failure, there's no real benefit to rate versus rhythm, but we don't know that in patients with HEFPEF. There's abnormal vasorelaxation. Uh, there's endothelial dysfunction that's associated with worse symptoms. There's uh, abnormal arterial stiffening, and this can feed back and worsen the diastolic reserve. And then all of these things work together uh, to limit the cardiac output response to stress. So again, the cardiac output is usually normal at rest, but when these patients start to do stuff, they can't increase their cardiac output. With that, they start to become more sedentary. They do even less. They withdraw. And this leads to sarcopenia. Their skeletal muscle starts to atrophy. There's been recent studies showing decreases in capillary density. There's increases in intramuscular fat in their legs. And this, importantly, also contributes to their symptoms. And then on top of it all, the autonomic nervous system, which regulates all of these things, uh, gets dysregulated. There's pathologic sympathoexcitation. Um, there's de decreased beta adrenergic responsiveness. And this contributes to all of this. So it's not just a stiff ventricle, unlike um, some of my colleagues who really want to keep promoting that. That's, it's just not that simple. It's the combination of all of these things. And the size of these different um, circles and squares in the Venn diagram varies from patient to patient. So you can imagine how this makes it very difficult to manage this with just one drug and say that these people are going to get better. Um, so I think in the future, we have to do a more careful job of phenotyping these patients so that we can individualize their therapies. OK, so uh, we'll get more pragmatic now. We'll talk about diagnosis. So we'll start with this. Um, and you guys all know this. Uh, exertional dyspnea and fatigue are very common complaints. People have, many, many people have this, especially above the age of 60. They're also the hallmark symptoms of heart failure, but most people that have these don't have heart failure, so how do we make this distinction? Uh, we get an echo, and in HEFREF, it's pretty easy because they've got a dilated ventricle and they've got a low ejection fraction. <coughs> You're done. Uh, but in HEFPEF, ventricular size is normal and the EF is normal. They may have high filling pressures, assuming they're congested, but you can have heart failure without being congested. And it's not so easy to assess filling pressures non-invasively, so this is not so easy to do. So, um, and I apologize, I showed some of these slides last night to, to the cardiology group, but if you look at um, a, a patient, typical 75-year-old woman, low EF, jugular distension, gallop, severe MR, this is quite clear, this is, this is HEFREP. Another 75-year-old woman, same symptoms, she's just as limited, but normal EF, concentric hypertrophy, diastolic dysfunction, also clear clinical evidence of congestion. This is very easy clinical diagnosis of HEFPEF. Um, but most patients don't fit into this, most of the patients that I see. They're usually maybe a little bit younger, and they've got a normal EF. They've got clear-cut symptoms, but they're not coming in in pulmonary edema. Uh, they have no clear volume overload. They look pretty euvolemic on exam. The BNP is normal. And they've maybe got some mild diastolic dysfunction. But this is not so unusual for 70-year-olds. So how do you deal with this? Well, um, the ESC, uh, European Society of Cardiology, came out with these guidelines a number of years ago. So signs and symptoms, normal EF, and then some evidence of diastolic dysfunction. So it can be by cath which is the gold standard, high pressures or increased stiffness. It can be by echo. And they really rely on this tissue Doppler echocardiography that we'll talk some more about, this E to E prime ratio. Um, if that's really high or if it's intermediately elevated and they have other findings like a high BNP, 
they say that's sufficient to make the diagnosis. So this E to E prime ratio, this is, so E is the velocity of blood flowing into the ventricle um, from the Doppler study. E prime is the velocity of tissue motion. Um, and what happens is your left atrial pressure goes up, the blood is flowing in faster due to congestion. Uh, as your relaxation gets worse, the tissue early motion, the E prime gets smaller, so the quotient gets higher and higher with higher filling pressures. And in the early studies, as is often the case in the early studies, uh, there is a very strong correlation between EE prime and directly measured wedge pressure. And it's really well correlated with uh, directly measured chamber stiffness. So this was the data that really compelled them to use it. Uh, but then again, as often as the case, as more and more people examine these things, maybe a little more disinterested evaluation, uh, we, we don't see these findings. Uh, this is from the Cleveland Clinic group, and they see no relationship in heart failure patients between wedge pressure and EE prime, no relationship between the change with decongestion with getting diuretics and therapy. Group in Texas, um, Ben Levine's group, uh, took it a step further. They took patients with HEPPEF and normal people, and they varied wedge pressure within the same patient. They did lower body suction to decrease venous return to the heart, and then they gave them saline to increase filling pressure. So they varied it from you know, 5 to 25 millimeters of mercury. And over this very broad range, EE prime changed from 10.5 to 11.5. And look at these error bars. So this really kind of raises some questions with how, how good this is. And when they look at the individual patient data, sometimes when the wedge pressure goes up, the EE prime goes up. Uh, but sometimes it goes down. Sometimes it stays the same. So not clear how great this is. It's generally, it's a pretty specific finding, but it's not a very sensitive finding for high filling pressures. Now, what about BNP? Uh, BNP is related to filling pressures. It's worse with um, greater grades of New York Heart class. But as I mentioned before, it's often normal in patients with HEPPEF. Um, so we did a study a couple years ago where we asked the question, what does this echo data and this BNP data add to a good physical exam? So we took cardiologists and cardiology fellows and um, patients that were coming to the cath lab for hemodynamic assessment, and uh, all people could do was examine the patient. Can't ask them any questions, do you have orthopnea, none of that stuff. Can't look at their prior records of the chest x-rays. Just a physical exam, and then right down on the paper, are they going to have normal or abnormal uh, right and left heart filling pressures? And then we provided them with the contemporaneous echo and BNP data. So we then gave that to them and said, OK, you can modify your decision. You can change. You can revise based on this data, which we believe is really useful uh, to guide our assessment. And then they went to the cap, and that was the gold standard. So 215 observations, and this is the overall accuracy. Um, it's not that good uh, from physical exam. So we're right about right atrial pressure 71% right about left heart filling pressure is 60%. Not much better from a coin flip. What do you suppose happened when we added the BNP and uh, echo data? <laughs> Nothing. And it, it wasn't that people weren't revising their predictions. It's that they were reclassifying correctly just as often as they were reclassifying incorrectly based on the data. So, um, you know, we think this stuff is great, but when you put it to the test, it's not so much, maybe. And that reclassification index, this is a way of quantifying the incremental value of a diagnostic test, not significantly different from zero. Now, these numbers look pretty bad, but there's hope. There was a training effect. So the staff cardiologists uh, were much more accurate than the fellows. So we need to all continue to practice and hone our skills in physical exam. Staff, 82% um, right for RA and 71% for wedge pressure. And that's, that's pretty good. So, um, so some questions here. I would remind you, as a heart failure doctor, jugular venous pressure is the most important physical finding, I would say, in cardiology. I'm a little biased as a hemodynamics kind of person. But um, if you can measure the jugular pressure correctly, at least 80% of the time, you're going to be right about the left heart filling pressures. Uh, people with a high jugular pressure um, are going to have a high wedge pressure well over 90% of the time. Um, people with a normal jugular pressure are usually going to have normal left heart filling pressures, but especially in patients with coronary disease or hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, they may still have high left heart pressures. But very, very useful to look carefully at the jugular venous uh, pulsations. 
Um, other things that we look for, so pH, pulmonary hypertension is very common. This is from uh, Carolyn Lamb and Maggie Redfield's study a couple years ago. Um, com uh, Community-based study here, and then um, prospective HEPPEP identification. Um, over 80% of the HEPPEP patients had a high PASP on echo, and this is something that's very common. We can get this on two-thirds, 70% of patients. When you see that in an older patient, you should really be thinking, are they going to have uh, heart failure with preserved EF? And that's because uh, PA pressure in many patients is often really telling us what the wedge pressure is. So this is the formula. Mean PA pressure is equal to the product of pulmonary vascular resistance times cardiac output plus the downstream left atrial pressure. That has to add in series with the resistive components related to the pulmonary vasculature. And in patients with early stage heart failure, um, you can see that PA systolic pressure is really telling us about wedge pressure. Um, with more advanced disease, the PVR is getting higher and it's not as tightly correlated. Uh, but when you look at the different echo measures, we actually see that PA systolic pressure is, is the best, most robust, compared to other things like EE prime and left atrial volume in identifying these patients. So that's all good. That's all good evidence of congestion. High PA pressures, jugulars, um, gallop sounds, but what if they're not congested? Um, again, lots of these patients don't look that way. This patient looked euvolemic. The BNP was normal. There's some diastolic dysfunction, but this is not so abnormal for a 70-year-old woman with hypertension. So this is the kind of patient where there's intermediate pretest probability where we would refer them for invasive assessment. And um, this is the data at that patient at rest. So this is, this is the left ventricular pressure in pink. And this is the pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, our estimate of left atrial pressure in yellow. And 12 is completely normal, suggesting this is not heart failure, right? Well, she's not symptomatic again at rest. She's symptomatic with exercise. So in order to answer this question, we need to stress the system and see what happens. So here's what happens with 40 watts of exercise. Now her uh, LVEDP and her wedge pressure are above 40. She's got these big V waves, which we commonly see in these patients. She's very short of breath. So this is HEFPEF. This is an early stage of HEFPEF where patients are eubulimic at rest, but they develop high filling pressures with stress. And that's why they get short of breath. Published a series of patients just like this a couple of years ago. And when you take patients exactly like the case I showed you, normal exam, normal resting hemodynamics, normal BNP, and you stress them in the lab, a little over half of them are going to show hemodynamic derangements that are diagnostic of heart failure. Uh, and this is the problem. It's the intermittent nature of filling pressure elevation. They look normal at rest. This probably also is why their BNP is normal. Uh, we really need to see what's happening here. Um, and, and, and the cath lab can be very useful to make that diagnosis. In the patients uh, in this study that were evaluated prior, there was more cardiomegaly on chest x-ray and more LVH on echo, uh, but these really didn't distinguish the two groups. When we applied that ESC algorithm that I showed you earlier, um, it, it, it performed quite poorly. 32% um, of people with cath disproven HEFPEF would have been diagnosed as having HEFPEF, and only 41% of people with real HEFPEF would have been appropriately diagnosed. So um, in that more challenging group, um, certainly referral for invasive assessment is very important. So this is sort of summarizes how I do it. Um, you know, a cath, I would say, is the gold standard, but we can't cath everybody. And we have to think probabilistically about heart failure. So if they have a lot of these things, uh, I didn't talk about history, exam, and chest x-ray, but this actually is at the top of the list. So PND, orthopnea, very specific signs of heart failure, excuse me, symptoms of heart failure, jugular distension, cardiomegaly. Um, but if you don't have that stuff, think about this high EE prime. If it's really high, that is helpful. If it's normal, it doesn't rule it out. Same thing with the PA pressure. Um, the LA volume, I told you earlier, is a very good robust marker. It, it actually predicts outcomes as well. Um, if they have LVH, or at least concentric remodeling, so if the ratio of um, um, wall thickness to the size of the chamber is increased, that's supportive. You don't have to have that. Um, high BNP is also helpful. Um, Cardiopulmonary exercise testing, we do do. These people have a low peak VO2 on average. Um, some groups have suggested they have a abnormal ventilation. We have not seen that to be the case, so not clear how good that is. And then typical demographics. Uh, if it's a 75-year-old woman with atrial fibrillation and obesity and hypertension and diabetes, that's very, very likely. 
If it's a 30-year-old man with none of those comorbidities, that's very, very unlikely. And even if it's heart failure, then you should be thinking about things like constriction, amyloidosis, something different, because that's not very typical of patients with HEPPAP. The more boxes that are checked, you increase the probability. If you've got three or four of these, I think you're done. Um, if you've just got one or two, that's the time for an invasive assessment. Okay, last part is about treatment. So um, these are the um, therapeutic recommendations from Kanu Chatterjee's paper in 1990 for HEPPAP. So, Treat the blood pressure, give them diuretics. If they're volume overloaded, think about treating ischemia. Think about ACE inhibitors. Control their heart rate. These are really things that you would do in any cardiovascular patient. And then think about cardioverting them. Um, these are the advances we've made since then. <laughs> so all level of evidence C. These are all just expert consensus opinion. We really have very little data to guide us with this. So um, in the absence of convincing trial data, what should we do? We, we need to do something. The patients are out there. They're in your office. They're on the wards. We need to do something. So this is my approach. So obviously treat hypertension. Um, who are you not going to treat hypertension in? Um, but how aggressively and with what? That's the question. Now there's some evidence that blood pressure control in and of itself may improve diastolic relaxation. There was a trial called the VALIS study, which compared valsartan to other blood pressure control. And valsartan was no better than other things, but just the magnitude of blood pressure reduction was associated with greater improvements in this E prime, which is related to diastolic relaxation. So, so that may help in and of itself, especially if they're very hypertensive. There was a trial called PEP-CHF that tested perindopril in older patients with HEF-PEF. Um, it looked like it was going to be positive at one year, but overall it was a neutral trial, so we should be very cautious about interpreting <clears throat> secondary endpoints. Uh, but in the absence of other compelling evidence, two secondaries that we care about were better. Six-minute walk distance was longer, and New York Park class was better. So I think this certainly supports the use of ACE inhibitors in these people to control blood pressure. ARBs have been tested in two very large trials. Uh, which were neutral, especially iPreserve, which tested herbisartan, very representative cohort, very large size across all subgroups. It was a neutral study. Um, it's not bad. You're not going to do harm by giving an ARB, but you're not going to do any specific disease-modifying effect from this class. Now, there was an interesting study in all hat, an ancillary study, where they looked at incident heart failure development in people that were randomized to the different arms. And um, only chorthalidone was associated with a decreased incident development of HEPPEF. Um, now, that's not the same as treating somebody with diagnosed disease, obviously, but it's interesting. I think it's certainly supportive for both blood pressure control and a little bit of volume control. And then we'll talk some more about aldosterone antagonists. It's very reasonable at this time point. And again, I've got, we'll come back to that in, in a couple minutes. Um, so, I think that you should consider all of those medicines. Uh, usually ACE inhibitors and ALGO antagonists and diuretics are the, are the first ones we go for. But be careful with hypotension. Probably have a higher goal blood pressure on average, uh, certainly than what we do in systolic heart failure. In HEFREF, we're cranking up the carvalol even when the blood pressure is 85 over 70. Uh, shouldn't be doing that in patients with HEFREF, and I'm going to tell you why. So um, we looked at this. We looked, uh, published a study a couple years ago in Jack, where we compared the hemodynamic response to vasodilation in patients with HEFPEF and HEFREP. So they got the same dose of uh, intravenous nitroprusside, which is a mixed arterial and venous vasodilator. And with that, uh, we saw nice reductions in PA pressure that were the same in patients with HEFPEF and HEFREP. And we saw nice reductions in left heart filling pressures. Wedge pressure came down very nicely in the two groups. And you can see no difference. Um, but when we look at the peripheral uh, hemodynamic changes, we see very big differences. Uh, Two-fold greater drop in blood pressure in patients with HEFPEF, so a much more dramatic hypotensive effect, and much less enhancement in forward stroke volume. Um, and this is predictable based on the shallow end systolic pressure volume relationship due to uh, ventricular contractile dysfunction, which is much more severe in patients with heart failure and reduced EF. So sort of less to gain uh, from it. And there also may be more to lose. Um, this is a cumulative distribution plot. So it's plotting all the patient's data. There are change in stroke volume with nitride. Um, 
and look at zero here. So uh, you can see that the patients with HEF-PEF are shifted over to the left. This is sort of a different way of showing you what I showed in those bar graphs a second ago. Uh, but this is useful to show this phenomenon. It's very uncommon for patients with HEF-PEF to have a drop in stroke volume with nitroprusside. It's quite common for patients with HEF-PEF to have a drop in stroke volume with nitroprusside. Um, almost 40% of these patients have that. And these are people that had a wedge pressure of 20 to 25 millimeters of mercury. Now, what is ventricular preload? We often think about, well, it's wedge pressure, or it's LVEDP. But um, that's not what ventricular myocytes care about. They want to be stretched. That's what dictates the Starling uh, relationship, is how much they're stretched out. And if you have a stiff ventricle, it needs a higher pressure to adequately stretch it. Uh, so there's a disconnect between filling pressure and filling volume, or LV end diastolic volume. And that's the true preload. So in some of these people, the venodilator effects of nipride were reducing venous return, the ventricle wasn't stretched out enough, and the forward stroke volume was impaired. So again, more evidence we need to be very careful with vasodilators in these people who are often older people, risk of falls, autonomic insufficiency, et cetera. Okay, so that's words on blood pressure. Uh, number two is control the central blood volume. But what do I mean by that? Um, so this is back to med school, uh, pressure volume loop. So pressure is on the y-axis, volume is on the x. And um, the normal ventricle can fill with a large volume of blood during diastole with minimal increase in pressure. In patients with HEF-PEF, this relationship on average is shifted up into the left, stiffer ventricle, um, so that at this same preload volume, the end diastolic pressure is much higher. The patient gets short of breath from that. Now, um, note that the diastolic pressure volume relationship is not a straight line. It's curvilinear. So if we can displace this person down to a smaller end diastolic volume, uh, we're going to have a much lower end diastolic pressure, and the breathing is going to be better. Then, hopefully, the ventricle is going, then going to shorten down to a smaller end systolic volume. And then, as I mentioned earlier, that's going to allow for enhanced recoil during the subsequent diastole, which is going to aid filling by enhancing the atrioventricular gradient. So uh, how do you do this? You can do it with diuresis or venodilation. If your estimate of the total plasma blood volume is increased, uh, namely if there's jugular distension, um, give a diuretic by all means. Many of these people don't have that. Um, in those cases, nitrates can be helpful. Nitrates are predominant uh, venodilators, at least organic nitrates like nitroglycerin, isosorbide mononitrate, and dinitrate. Um, you could do a pill in the pocket, and uh, they can take a subwingle when they get very short of breath, and that's going to acutely reduce venous return and help their symptoms of breathlessness. If they're going to go rake the leaves or mow the lawn or something like that, you can give them isosorbide dinitrate prior to, uh, to plan to exercise. And that can help mitigate this increase in filling pressures. But again, you need to be very careful and watch for hypotension. It's this intermittent nature of filling pressure elevation. You can successfully treat the abnormal increase, but you might sacrifice by making their filling pressures go too low at rest. Very difficult, very challenging to treat. Another thing we often talk about is controlling the heart rate. And this is largely based on um, mitral stenosis physiology. Remember in mitral stenosis uh, that the pressure gradient from the left atrium to the left ventricle during diastole is increased. And that pressure gradient varies with the square of the diastolic filling period. So the idea is if you, if you slow the heart rate, you have more time for diastole and more blood is going to get into the ventricle. But if you slow the heart rate in people with heart rates of 70, 80, 90, um, all you really do is prolong diastasis, which is the period when there's no flow across the mitral valve. And we also know, as I mentioned earlier, that chronotropic incompetence is very common in patients with HEPPEP. Um, maybe 50 three quarters, 50 percent three quarters of patients have it. And a lot of times that's their last limb of defense. Um, they don't have stroke volume reserve. Um, they don't have diastolic function. They don't have systolic function. All they've got is heart rate. And you take that away and they're just miserable. Um, beta blockers have not been well studied. There was a trial called Seniors, uh, which tested Nabivalol in Europe. Uh, they had a few HEF-PEF patients, and they did a post-hoc analysis that said there was no treatment difference, but it wasn't the same as a real prospective trial. We just really don't know about beta blockers. There is this drug called ivabradine, which is currently available in Europe. 
this is uh, this blocks a, a current called the funny current, the IF channel, and all it does is slow the sinoatrial rate. So it doesn't have um, inotropic effects or leucotropic effects or vascular effects. And in a very small study where they just gave this drug for a week, they saw a pretty dramatic increase in peak VO2 in HEPPEP patients who did not have chronotropic incompetence. So that's going to be tested in a larger clinical trial. I think right now, based on the data that we have available, beta blockers are reasonable as are calcium channel blockers, especially if the patient's tachycardic or has a really tachycardic response to exercise. But you need to be very careful with chronotropic incompetence. Treat other conspirators. Um, atrial fibrillation. Uh, this is a trial that's waiting to be done. Rate versus rhythm control trial has been done in HEFREF. There's no difference. But these people are much more reliant on atrial systolic function. And uh, <coughs> I've really had a lot of patients who felt dramatically better bringing them back into normal sinus rhythm. So I will usually try to do that, even in the patients with a lot of atrial remodeling, where the odds of sustaining the sinus rhythm are diminished. Um, sleep, sleep disorder breathing, a lot of these people have sleep apnea. Obviously, treating that is going to also help with their pulmonary hypertension. Um, renal artery stenosis, the board question, is the patient that comes in with uh, blood pressure 275 in the, uh, in the ER and you scan them, they've got renal artery stenosis. I'll say, you know, we look for this a lot, and usually that's not what it is. Um, but so, certainly something to think about, particularly if it's really severe uh, hypertension. Um, anemia, just like in HEF-REF, it's common in HEF-PEF. It predicts increased mortality, increased uh, hospitalizations. Still not sure what to, what to do about it. We'll talk about that. Part of that is probably just dilutional effects from uh, uh, sodium and volume overload. And then don't forget about their non-cardiovascular comorbidities, all the medical illnesses. These people are often dying of pulmonary embolism or hip fractures or <coughs> pneumonia or urosepsis. Uh, we've got to pay close attention to these other things that really drive outcomes as well. So if we go back to this list, uh, one of the things that I had checked here was uh, treat ischemia. And that's recommended um, in the current guidelines, um, in, in, in the 2013 guidelines as well. Um, so what do we know about that? Well, if we go back to our 70-year-old lady um, that we had done the cap on, remember she had the normal filling pressures at rest, but they went really high with low-level exercise. Um, so we were there. We're doing a cath. We're in the left ventricle. It's not too hard to also do an angiogram. And this is her right coronary artery. And you can see right here, there's sort of this inverse apple core, a very tight lesion in the right coronary artery. Her left, left side of the coronary artery looked OK. There were no significant stenoses. So here's another uh, picture. This is from the, that's from the left side. This is a, a right. Uh, oblique view, and you can see again there, very tight. Uh, so clearly, this wall would be likely getting ischemic during the stress of exercise. So, so what do you do with this? Well, um, what do we know about the role of coronary disease in HEPCAP? Um, it has been very little. This is really all that's been out there. This is from Bill Little's group. They took patients that came in with acute pulmonary edema. Many of these people went on to get a coronary angiogram. Some of them got revascularized and then some of them didn't. And then they looked at freedom from recurrent pulmonary edema or death, and you can see the results right here. No effect of revascularization. But this is the sample size, and uh, very few deaths. So this is really all we've had to operate on. So this motivated us to look further at this. So this is a study that's just coming out right now. This is actually from the proofs in Jack, where we looked at the implications of coronary disease. So um, we took all patients who'd been hospitalized for heart failure. And then we crossed that with the echo, with the cath lab database to get everybody who had a, an angiogram after that hospitalization over six months. Then we crossed that with the echo database to get everybody who had a normal EF. And then my poor fellow went through and looked at every one of those cases and threw out the people that had amyloid or restrictive disease or an acute coronary syndrome or myocarditis or something else to get true HEFPEP. And when you do that, you're left with 376 really ideal patients. And in that group, um, about two-thirds of them had significant um, epicardial, epicardial coronary artery disease. Now, obviously, this is a referral population. It's a cath lab population. So maybe that would enrich this group with more CAD. 
Um, but a lot of times people, you know, in autopsy studies, a lot of people with no premorbid diagnosis of CAD were found to have severe uh, free vessel disease. Um, so it is fairly common. This is a very important point and a, and a um, kind of surprising observation. So patients with um, CAD and without CAD have similar symptoms of breathlessness. Uh, they have the same prevalence of more severe heart failure, New York Heart Class 3 or 4. Um, they also have similar prevalence of angina. So people with no significant coronary artery disease are just as likely to complain of classic substernal chest pressure as people without it, especially in women, older women. Uh, a lot of times this exertional chest tightness is sort of a form frust uh, presentation of heart failure. That's their experience of dyspnea and high filling pressures. We looked at the implications of stress testing. So this is all patients. These are the patients with HEPPEP and CATH excluded, no anatomic coronary disease, 45% false positive rate. This was mostly with imaging, stress echo, and nuclear testing, but pretty staggering here. Looking at the patients with CATH proven significant coronary disease, 30% false negative rate. So that's pretty bad. Um, you may say, well, what if we do it better? You know, let's just focus on people that have angina because we really believe that angina is the way to go. It's not any better. It's not any better. So um, I have colleagues that are just doing an angiogram routinely on people presenting with HEFPEP unless there's some contraindication. I'm not quite to that point, uh, but I think this is provocative to say the least, uh, that we should be um, raising some questions about the evaluation. Now, what about changes in LV function? About 60% of the patients had two assessments of EF. Um, they had one before they had their angio, and then they had one later. Um, and you can see in the HEPPEP patients without coronary disease, it's very uncommon for them to transition from HEPPEP to HEPREF. Only a few patients did that. In contrast, when you have patients with HEPPEP and CAD, it is quite common. And if you do a bar graph and compare the two groups, uh, significantly greater drop in ejection fraction in the patients with CAD. What about the impact on outcome? This is survival in patients with and without CAD. Uh, the presence of coronary disease, even if you adjust for other known independent predictors of outcome in heart failure patients, significantly worse in them patients with coronary disease and health path. Um, does revascularization help? Well, um, this suggests that maybe it does. It's retrospective, of course. It's not a prospective trial single center, but we see less drop in EF, uh, less transition from HEPPEP to HEPREF. And then what about overall survival? This is a Kaplan-Meier curve, just including the patients with coronary disease, and those who received complete revascularization enjoyed a substantially better outcome, uh, which was very apparent at just two years compared to patients with HEPPEP with coronary disease who were not revascularized. In fact, when you compare them, they have identical survival to patients with HEPPEP and no coronary disease. So again, uh, we don't have proven treatments. We need to think about what else we can do. And evaluation and treating for ischemia is certainly something that I think that we should be thinking about. Do we need a prospective trial? Absolutely. And I hope that this will help to motivate to get that started. Other things, one of the few things that's been shown to really help is exercise training. This is from Delane Kitzman's study. Um, they did just, uh, I think it was eight or 12 weeks of exercise training, improvement in exercise capacity, improved in quality of life symptoms. A uh, European group observed the same finding. In fact, they even saw some reductions in this E to E prime ratio, which again is supposed to reflect filling pressures. Uh, they saw shrinkage in LA volume, so there's lots of enthusiasm for this. CMS has approved exercise, cardiac rehab, exercise training for HEF-REF. But because there's not enough data in HEPPEP, they, they haven't approved it. But you should certainly encourage it in your patients. And if you can find a way, if their insurance will pay for it, uh, find a way to do it. Anemia, I told you before, is uh, very common. This is a study from um, New York, from Columbia. And um, they gave uh, erythropoietin-stimulating uh, agents to patients with HEPPEP and anemia. And they improved their hemoglobin. Uh, but despite that, um, their exercise capacity and their symptoms didn't get any better, and their ventricles didn't look any different. Uh, their quality of life scores also were no different. So we don't know what to do. Certainly if they have iron deficiency, you're going to give them iron. If they have another myeloid disease, you're going to go ahead and treat that. Uh, but it's not clear what to do about that in these people. 
So what's on the horizon? Um, there's a lot of excitement for phosphodiesterase 5 inhibitors. So um, PDE5 um, uh, breaks down cyclic GMP, um, uh, which is stimulated by natriuretic peptides and nitric oxide. So it's a vasorelaxing. And in the cardiac myocytes, it is antihypertrophic effects. Um, so there's lots of hope that this would help people with LVH and HEFPEF, basal relaxation, decreased ventricular hypertrophy, improved diastolic function. This is a small 44-patient one-year study from Italy uh, where they randomized patients with HEFPEF and very severe pulmonary vascular disease and a lot of LVH to sildenafil or placebo. And they saw huge improvements, reductions in pulmonary vascular resistance. They saw uh, reductions in RV filling pressure, increase in stroke volume, um, improvements in right ventricular function, and improvements in gas exchange. So this was very exciting. Uh, finally, maybe we'll have something that's going to work. Uh, but then, just last year, we published the results of the RELAX trial, uh, which randomized patients to sildenafil titrated to 60 TID or placebo. We saw nothing. Much larger, multi-center study, double blind, uh, no improvements in exercise capacity, no improvements in echo surrogates of ventricular function and filling pressures, uh, no difference in quality of life or biomarkers. Um, so disappointing. Now, you could say these patients didn't have really severe pulmonary hypertension, and that's true. There might be a role for PDE5 inhibitors in some of those patients. But for overall sort of garden variety HEPPEF, which was very much the population that we studied here, uh, it just didn't work. Well, what about aldosterone antagonists? We know in HEFREF, um, this is some of the most powerful drugs that we have, spironolactone, plerinone, 30, 35% improvements in survival in heart, in heart failure patients with reduced EF. So this is a paper called the ALDO-DHS study from Europe that was published in JAMA last year. And they had co-primary endpoints. They treated people with HEPF to spironolactone or placebo. And the co-primary endpoints were this, again, E to E prime ratio, echo surrogate of left heart filling pressures, and that got better. Kind of predictable with a diuretic that that's going to get better, but that's certainly encouraging. Their other co-primary endpoint was exercise capacity, peak oxygen consumption, and that did not get better. And they looked at quality of life scores, that didn't get better either. Hospitalizations, that didn't get better. So depending on how you want to look at it, a positive or a neutral trial, um, I think it's more of a neutral trial. Uh, and then, um, more recently, we've had publication of the TopCat trial. And um, I think this is the slide I wanted to show. Uh, this was just published in the New England Journal recently. So the combined endpoint here was heart failure hospitalization, aborted sudden cardiac death, or cardiovascular death. Um, very large trial, about 3,500 patients, treated, followed for a median of over three years, and there was no effect of spironolactone on this combined endpoint. If you just look at heart failure hospitalizations, there was a small but significant reduction in heart failure hospitalizations. But again, when you don't meet the primary endpoint, you have to be very skeptical about multiple secondary endpoints. Um, and the purist would say, we, we can't really say anything. This is only hypothesis generating. The other concern is that overall hospitalizations didn't get better. And that's what we care about, is overall hospitalizations. Part of the reason for that is more hyperkalemia hospitalizations, um, as you would expect. Now, there's less hypokalemia, but there's also more hyperkalemia. Now, one thing that's been pointed out um, that I think is very, very valid um, is that there was a regional effect. So um, it was sort of an underfunded study, as our NIH trials frequently. Um, so they had to get creative how they could enroll patients for a little cheaper. So they engaged patients in Eastern Europe, in Russia and Georgia. Um, and then in a post hoc analysis, they compared the roughly half of patients with HEPPEF who were enrolled in the Western Hemisphere, in the Americas, United States, South America. And in this group, who had an event rate of 32%, there was a significant reduction in the combined endpoint. So if it would have only been done here with half the sample size, it would have been a positive study. Um, however, the other half of the patients in Russia and Georgia um, enjoyed no benefit from spironolactone. Note the event rate. I'm sorry, this is not, that's not 8% event rate over this, uh, this time period. So 
questions about the veracity of the heart failure diagnosis. So this has got the heart failure world in a bit of an uproar. Some people are almost interpreting this as a positive trial because of this. I don't think we can do that. We have to stick to the rules of, of trials. But certainly, it supports the use of spironolactone uh, as a first-line agent in the absence of contraindications, I think, to control blood pressure and volume overload. There's a whole host of other things under investigation uh, from our groups and others, and we can, we can maybe talk about this in the question and answer if people are interested. Uh, Renolazine is the antianginal agent, but it also affects um, mitochondrial efficiency and uh, energetic efficiency, and that might help as the, this other drug, uh, perhexylene, which is available in Europe. Pacing, we mentioned we're starting a pacing trial. There's lots of chronotropic incompetence. We're going to see if that helps these people to feel better. Um, lots of different therapies targeting um, um, the guanylate cyclase, nitric oxide, cyclo-GMP system, uh, things that titrate or that affect um, oxidative stress, like hemopurinol, <coughs> also offer some hope. So in summary, HEF-PEF is very common. It's half of all heart failure. It's increasing, whereas systolic failure is uh, staying the same, and it's going to be the dominant form of heart failure by about 2020. Outcomes are similar to systolic heart failure, similarly bad. Pathophysiology is complex. There's diastolic dysfunction, but it's much more than that. Systolic, vascular, endothelial, chronotropic, peripheral, it's all of these things. Diagnosis can be very challenging. It relies on the demonstration of a normal EF and some objective evidence of high filling pressures. Uh, this can be done from a physical exam and a chest x-ray if it works. Um, if, if the echo tells us the answer, great. If it doesn't, that's when it's time for hemodynamic assessment. Treatment, nothing is proven to benefit. It's empiric. It's case by case. Be careful with hypotension. Think about um, cardioverting and restoring sinus rhythm. Think about evaluating for coronary disease, and we absolute, absolutely need more prospective data, and we're working on that. So um, at this point, I'll stop and be glad to take any questions. Thank you. <laughs> Doctor, we have a question from the internet. Uh, uh, folks from the VA were asking, do you have any tips for improving the evaluation of JVP in very obese patients? Is there any way to improve our exam specific to these obese patients? We actually looked in that study that I showed earlier. Um, we compared um, obese versus non-obese. And even though we all think that it's much more difficult, um, the accuracy was just as good. Um, you know, I uh, will do the hepatojugular reflux test frequently in those patients um, to, to, to try and really bring it out. But I, I think that maybe we give up a little too soon a lot of times in obese patients. I really think that you can often see those venous waveforms. Some people you just absolutely can't, and they're, they're just basically a black box. And those are the people that, you know, and the echo is often limited in them too, with Terrence, you know that. So those are um, a lot of times the patients we need for an invasive valve. That's absolutely brilliant talk. I think it was wonderful to hear so much emphasis on the clinical bedside evaluation. I have trouble with ejection fraction, always have, because it's a ratio between some hemodynamic variables and largely architectural variables. And I think it's the architectural variables that are distinguishing these two types of heart failure, specifically the kind of proliferative signaling that leads to the way sarcomeres are added to Martin Gerda's type of stuff. And I think that probably, looking at, at, at I realize there's not much to say about that now, but I think that's where the emphasis is going to have to be, because this also is going to tell us why two mutations in the same gene, like a myosin have a chain, one gives you hypertrophic, one gives you dilated. Mm -hmm. uh, a, a question, how often does, in the absence of myocardial infarction, does diastolic heart failure or hip, the one with the preserved ejection fraction, go to the dilated one? In other words, is, is if this is, I, I think it's somewhat debatable as to whether or not if you follow these people, you're going to see them converting into systolic heart failure. Does that really happen? Yeah, it does. It does. And it, it, happen, it doesn't happen very often in the absence of coronary disease. But if there is coronary disease, it's not uncommon. And um, we looked back to try and find discrete infarcts and often cannot. So it may be chronic ischemia just causing remodeling, as you say. Walter Paulus's group has done histopathologic studies and compared biopsies, LV biopsies, 
of half RAF versus half PEP, and it's as you say, the myocytes are more elongated and thinner in patients with half uh, RAF and half PEP, they're thicker and there's a little bit more fibrosis. So it really, ultrastructural, there's important differences. I think better terms would be heart failure with dilated ventricles and heart failure without dilated ventricles. Oh yeah, there's, we've worked, we've worked way too hard to get half PEP, so I'm not gonna give it up in the last 10 years to get people to use that term. A follow-up question on uh, measuring GVP. We've seen an explosion in bedside ultrasound. Is there any role for bedside ultrasound in improving our physical exam findings? Oh, I definitely think so. Uh, that needs to be, I mean, there's been some studies that have shown that, that it can be helpful. And do you have your fellow interns and residents using that right now? Yeah, no, we've got uh, that not, too. Not necessarily for this, because I don't, I'm not sure that we've, that I'm not sure that I've seen anything that, that you can really hang your hat on to say like, here's the finding that you can look for that would let you uh, measure GVP. Yeah, I, I absolutely think so. If you can image the, the IVC, it's a pretty good, um, that's accurate about 70, 75% of the time. Now, I would say a good physical examination is just as accurate. And we, I didn't include that, but we have that data in that study. Um, but uh, this, is, this is reality. I mean, the younger groups are getting more and more reliant on technology and echo way. You know, I'm afraid stethoscopes are gonna go away in my lifetime. I hope that's not the case. But. So with similar risk factors for both groups, why do some develop HEPREF and some develop HEPREF? Well, um, there is a lot of overlap in the risk factors, but there's also differences. I mean, um, in HEPREF, uh, left bundle branch block, prior MI, male sex, those are the strong risk factors. Um, clearly, if there's a genetic component, which they're, you know, we think maybe 20% of people with so-called primary DCM have genetic, probably much higher than that. If quick at sight, uh, troponin mutation, uh, titan mutations in a large number of these people. Um, different risk factors, overlap again, but there's different risk factor profiles in, in, in HEFPEF. Women, hypertension is a stronger risk factor in that group. AFib is a stronger risk factor. So there are some differences, but I admit there, there is a lot of overlap. Age is the, the strongest for both of them. But there's probably things that happen that dictate uh, how you remodel. Women develop less chamber dilatation than men. So if you take a man and a woman with AS and expose them to pressure overload, the man is much more likely to dilate. The woman will develop more concentric hypertrophy, and maybe that's a big part of why there's a big sex difference in the predilection to develop that. Path. You alluded to the possible use of allopurinol in so um, allopurinol, if you give it, um, so oxidative stress is increased in patients with systolic heart failure. So um, there's increased ROS formation, and that um, impairs inotropic responses to like beta adrenergic stimulation. So David Cast did a very elegant study over years ago in humans, where they actually gave intracoronary infusion of allopurinol and um, that they repeated the, the dobutamine challenge and they saw a big improvement in um, uh, contractile reserve um, uh, with an improvement in ventricular efficiency. So the idea with alpurinol would be that you would you know, change the oxidative potential in the cell um, and maybe improve that efficiency. So I, we're, we're testing that in a small study, uh, more of a mechanistic study using PET. PET imaging to look at um, oxidative phosphorylation efficiency. Um, we'll see. Uh, it, it's, a, you know, it's a cheap, generic drug. It would be great if it worked. You put a lot of emphasis, uh, by the way, wonderful talk. Um, Thank you. On the hemodynamic evaluation, which you do so well at Mayo. Um, but then um, your data on treatment suggests uh, that maybe a lot of that is just to satisfy our curiosity because our treatment options are limited. Couldn't you argue that at this point, <coughs> one tries one's best with clinical exam and echocardiography, particularly, unfortunately, came too late for your LA volume index uh, uh, data, which suggests that if we assess LA volume accurately uh, and indexing it to the uh, body surface area, should be quite uh, sensitive uh, for detection of increased left atrial pressure. Those are probably the patients I. I, I, I suppose, which are more likely to benefit from diuretic therapy, for example. That um, the patients who may not then uh, do so well with the uh, exercise, whether to give them diuretics prophylactically because the exercise becomes more questionable. So 
maybe for practical management, we don't need cardiocatheterization as much as you suggest. Well, I don't think, um, I get this question a lot. Um, <laughs> I, I think that, um, yeah, you can, uh, this is no time for therapeutic nihilism just because we don't have a treatment. Um, lots of patients really want to know, at least the patients that come to me at Mayo, they, they are, they're coming because they're frustrated and they don't know why they're so short of breath. And they, they want an answer. Um, it has prognostic implications to know that you do or do not have HEPPEF. Uh, do you have heart failure? Do you have something else? It puts the brakes on other evaluations. You can hold off on a lot of pulmonary evaluations if you know that. And then um, enrollment in clinical trials. Now, um, so if you don't have clinical trials going, maybe that's less. But I mean, that's my best advice for a lot of patients. Is, and we have a couple going right now. So. I mean, nothing's proven yet, but I think it's just a matter of time. I think we are going to find something, and then. But your point is well taken. If you if you don't have any of those other things to option, uh, as an option, you, you could just try to empirically sort of treat them. And, and I agree with the comments about LA volume. Well, we thank you for teaching us. Thank you.